0: The following short story is from Brickmoon Fiction's third annual Best of Anthology, The Weaponization of Narrative, and is available in print or electronic editions from Amazon. You can also find out more at our website, brickmoonfiction.com. Brickmoon Fiction presents Only Rage by Josh Trepani, narrated by Nicholas Thurkettle. Only Rage, an oral history of the big hack by Jesse Broad. Reviewed by Stephen Lynch for Literary Supplement That I am writing this review, that you're reading it, that Literary Supplement exists and pays me to review books, hell, that broads or any book is published at all, each of these owes a debt to the big hack. Now considered one of the seminal events of 21st-century American history, the hack has been studied from every conceivable angle. A comprehensive collection of book-length treatments alone would fill enough cloud space to crash even the hardiest server— with offerings ranging from the final investigative report of the Congressional Blue Ribbon Commission on the Big Hack, unclassified version, to Erwin Ungader's magisterial ethnography of hack victims' We Are Not Our Data. In this crowded and often technical field, Jesse Broad's only rage constitutes lighter fare, more of a niche retrospective, with few new details or personalities, Instead, Broad catches up with the well-known accumulating reminisces and perspectives a generation removed from key events. While narrowly scoped, this approach nonetheless makes for fascinating reading. Broad takes as given readers familiarity with the outlines of The Big Hack, a massive coordinated cyber attack on the largest technology companies, which at the time possessed a near monopoly of the internet and all that flowed from it—commerce, media, social interaction, and much of the national conversation. The Pokes, as they became known—the name is a mocking reference to a failed Facebook feature rather than to, as has entered apocryphal lore, the Irish band, the Pogues—were after one thing, people's data. Once in possession of it, the Pokes applied algorithms as sophisticated as those used by the tech companies themselves, but in ways singularly calculated to harm millions— The ensuing outcry catalyzed the creation of the Federal Data Protection Authority and a massive revamp of the nation's intellectual property and antitrust laws. It spelled the beginning of the end of the large Internet monopolies and led to a new flourishing of journalism, literature, and other forms of expression long devalued as content, important only in terms of number of clicks. Today, few would argue that the Big Hack ultimately raised the level of national discourse and began a sea change in attitudes that led to more effective governance and better quality of life. Broad's choice of interviewees conjures the national atmosphere in the years prior to the Big Hack. He includes lengthy discourses from several former tech titans, Mark Zuckerberg, the wunderkind who created Facebook, While the mere mention of this company conjures some joke whose punchline involves your elderly parents, Facebook was a force to be reckoned with in the early years of this century, and may even have swayed national elections. And a full-time philanthropist, since his company and presidential run both failed, disappoints by offering evasions and platitudes. Broad concludes, and readers will concur, that the Zuck still just doesn't get it. By contrast, Jeff Bezos, whose Amazon remains a key player in the retail world, though not of its previous magnitude, talks at length about the role of quality journalism as a check on government. Bezos devoted his personal wealth to acquiring several of the nation's largest and most influential media outlets, granting them editorial independence while buffering them from otherwise brutal market forces. Some of the best journalism of the last two decades has come from this union of capital and freedom. While Bezos transformed from villain to hero, one other player from that time continues to relish his status as scoundrel. Now a cantankerous nonagenarian confined to Mar-a-Lago Island, what used to be his estate, but with sea-level rise, is now protected from submersion only by seawalls financed by the Mexican government, which was eager to, as reports at the time put it, build a wall around Donald Trump. The former president's remarks consist of a single 2,000-word run-on sentence with approximately 350 clauses. Broad disclaims that he's unsure if the man was lucid. Trump's long-standing dementia is well documented, and Broad reports the ex-president attempted to tweet several times during their conversation, even though Twitter went defunct a dozen years ago. But dementia versus lucidity may be a distinction without a difference in this case, given that Trump's words continue to exemplify outmoded thinking— Xenophobic, incurious, and focused on the almighty dollar as ends rather than means, as he himself might remark, sad. Broad may have been checking a box by speaking with the former president, but it's an essential one. Trump's presidency, considered the nadir of American politics in the modern era, partly motivated the hack. This was a time when American values were nearly usurped by the power of the market and by polarization of the population— large swaths of whom were so immersed in their own cultural narratives that generalizations about the other side, based on the worst examples or even outright falsehoods, became dogma. Violent groups grew their appeal and spread their message online. Hatreds, old and new, were stoked. Propaganda was rampant and virtually unchecked by credible and critical analysis, or the analysis itself was labeled fake. People began referring to the post-fact era. To understand the anxiety underlying this dynamic, recall this was a time when American politicians routinely thumbed their noses at European nations where the quality of life was demonstrably better. It was before the All-Care Healthcare Act, back when health care was tied to employment and a serious illness could financially devastate most American families. It preceded the Education Equality Act, the Family Leave Act, and the Capital Gains Our Wages tax reform effort. It was a time when the now hotly debated Basic Income Act would have been a laughable proposition. Indeed, many would have considered it anti-American. Deep insecurity, fueled by economic inequality, combined with national myths around self-reliance and a storied history of racism to create the perfect storm, a storm that technology, unchecked by regulation, exacerbated. Broad speaks with many figures involved in the big hack itself, though not with its most central. Kevin Landsman was an unknown career bureaucrat, a Fed in contemporary parlance, when, at the age of 46, he won the second-largest Powerball lottery jackpot awarded to that point. All expectations would have been for him, along with his wife, Rachel, an economics professor, and young son, Liam, to buy a beach house and disappear, or perhaps, at most, to make a few large political contributions or start a small foundation, However, having grown disillusioned with the fundamental state of American democracy, a common feeling at the time, landsman was instead incensed to realize that his winnings, which increased his net worth a thousandfold and left him extremely rich by any reasonable standard, constituted a mere two percent of the wealth of some of the nation's richest individuals at the time, including Zuckerberg and Bezos. Landsman imagined one way to unify people regardless of race, gender, geography, or political persuasion was to tap into the common vulnerabilities they were exposed to via their data. This great wake-up, he believed, was something everyone would share, and, like the proverbial snowball rolling downhill, it would pick up momentum in ways that would stop what he viewed as, do mix metaphors, an ever tighter and ultimately fatal tailspin of tribalism, mistrust, and contempt. The big hack was a sophisticated crime that could not have succeeded without a group of motivated experts and an essentially unlimited budget. Landsman, newly minted millionaire, attracted a ragtag team of hackers as well as disillusioned engineers who knew the big companies inside and out. He also set up his own big data firm centered on sophisticated polling through hundreds of polls, the Pokes developed a deep understanding of Americans' fears and vulnerabilities. These were correlated with detailed demographics, binned and winnowed down to those most likely to be revealed through data. Categories like cheating on partner, hidden sexual fetish, lying about credentials, criminal records slash admission of crime, evidence of drug abuse, financial malfeasance, antisocial views, and embarrassing images. Then, the literal geniuses on the other side of Landsman's shop developed and tested predictive analytics to identify these behaviors through data. Even the best algorithms misidentify behaviors in a significant number of instances, but this was unimportant to the Pokes, who deliberately tweaked the algorithms in favor of false positives. On a chat board, Broad tracks down one of the Pokes, known only as Assangefer 3.2, an Estonian who claims never to have set foot on U.S. soil. A for 3.2 describes the thrill of the final preparations for the hack. We knew we would have little time. Teams went into each of the main target systems late Christmas Eve, like unwelcome Santa Clauses creeping down their chimneys. Bulk grabbed as much as they could and got right out. All the infrastructure was waiting. The data were bounced around and distributed worldwide to make the path hard to trace. Millions of dollars of supercomputing power then went to work to process the information rapidly. The data were cleaned, joined together, and run through the algorithms. We'd only have one shot, so we did test run after test run, first with fake data and fake systems, then with real systems small enough not to attract much notice. Until we were ready. As Christmas Day dawned, with many pokes on flights out of the country, four large printing facilities around the U.S. began churning out millions of letters, The ironic coup de grace of the whole maneuver was that the material was disseminated to individual citizens, and their spouses, parents, children, employers, and local law enforcement agencies, with good old-fashioned stamps and envelopes. By the time the scale and intent of the operation was detected, most of the letters and photos sat in people's mailboxes, delivered by the U.S. Postal Service. Each missive came with a standard disclaimer at the bottom— The discovery of this information was made possible by the failure of your elected representatives to regulate the Internet. Please let them know how you feel. Along with contact information for that individual's member of Congress. It's easy, from our perspective years down the road, to focus on big picture social trends and forget the lives ruined by the big hack. Careers were derailed. Children and their parents stopped speaking, divorce rates increased by 5% in the three years after. One study estimates the hack may have broken up 25,000 marriages nationwide. Suicide and incarceration rates also spiked, no doubt in part due to the information brought to light by the big hack. There's no good way to estimate the overall pain and stress, but even in cases of false positives, people often suffered irreparable damage to their relationships and reputations. Unlike most of the pokes, Landsman did not flee. It took little time for law enforcement to locate him and in short order a draconian prison sentence was handed down, one that's curtailed his ability to communicate ever since. Broad tried everything, but even at this late date a visit was out of the question, and he obtained not a single phone call or letter from the infamous inmate. Though hack victims had little sympathy for them, Landsman's family were also casualties. Perhaps the most baffling part of the whole incident is that Landsman spent all his newfound money— While leaving Rachel and Liam in the dark about his efforts, that he threw away both his good fortune and his family constitutes one of the most controversial aspects of Landsman's legacy, and many have argued about his motivations. Did he exclude them to protect them? It worked, no charges were filed. Because Rachel would object or report him? Because he did not consider her an intellectual peer? Unlikely, given that she'd earned a Ph.D. in macroeconomics, for goodness sakes. What right did he have to spend money that belonged to all of them? How can selfishness and selflessness be so mixed in one individual? There are no good answers. Yet, a phoenix rose from the ashes of this ruined family. Rachel Bourne Bourne's story is even more fascinating than Landsman's. In the aftermath of the big hack, she was shocked by the sudden unraveling of a life she thought blessed, and vilified by the media and the public as both a patsy and an accomplice. Unknown beforehand, except to her students, she became a household name. Facing an onslaught of criticism and public hatred no matter what I did, she writes in her unforgettable memoir Life Hack, which ought to be required reading for every American, was liberating because it left me free to do what I felt was right. Born divorced her husband, now incarcerated, changed her name, and took Liam, seven years old at the time, to Switzerland. But she did not retreat from public life. Her frank writings introduced much-needed nuance into discussions around freedom and privacy, as well as marriage, family, and gender roles. Born shared with her ex-husband an intolerance for sloppy argument and lazy generalization, and a deep concern for the degradation of public discourse. While prison silenced Landsman, Bourne has become an enduring public figure, and in that strange way their legacy is joint. Broad spent several days with Bourne in Switzerland, but unfortunately, because she remains so widely written and spoken, her account as relayed in the book is of little more than general interest. Readers who still need an introduction to Bourne's life and writings are instead urged to pick up her memoir and Horse and Carriage, a collection of her most influential essays, Broad also tracked Liam, now nearly 30, to a rural village in Uganda where he works on infrastructure development. Liam would say only two words to Broad, the second of which was you. A scheme less ingeniously devised might not have been so effective at uniting people, but the big hack anticipated the most divisive voices and was designed to account for and discount them. This was another benefit of the extensive polling that preceded the act, as Broad's interviews with some of the pollsters reveal. One of them, Mona Moore, who served five years in federal prison for her role in the hack before founding Moore Polls, now one of the nation's top opinion analytics firms, articulates what they learned. The vocal left was obsessed with identity politics, so we knew they'd treat victims as group representatives and claim the suffering of certain victims, those from historically less privileged groups, mattered more. We ensured, through selective sampling, that people saw individuals, regardless of group, suffering the same way, sharing the same basic concerns. It's not that Kevin didn't recognize real differences between groups. Inequality of all kinds was one of the Pokes' great motivators, but polling showed the most effective way to unite people was to appeal to common and shared values. Generalizing everyone in the more privileged group regardless of their individual circumstances alienated huge numbers of people. What we knew we'd hear from the right was variants of the victims deserved what happened to them because they'd committed a crime or adultery or done something stupid or showed poor judgment or because they'd shared their data at all. For some who were members of minority groups, the implicit message would be that they deserved it for existing, But this held no water when everyone recognized themselves in the victims. In this instance, the false positives helped, because many who'd done nothing wrong fell under suspicion, which aroused the ire of people claiming to value individual freedoms. The pokes anticipated that divisive voices would find any excuse to point at other citizens, highlighting differences to laud some at the expense of others, rather than place blame where it belonged, on the ineffectual government and highlight similarities shared by all to motivate people to solve problems. Of course, shrill voices on both right and left spoke, but they, and the zero-sum game they represented, began to lose their resonance. Broad observes, here was something that everyone from the gun-toting, pickup-truck-driving white guy from a small rural town who hates the government but always cashes his mom's social security check the day it arrives, to the black, lesbian, transgender urban activist who spends hours lecturing people on pronoun use and always desperately needs to use the bathroom in public places, could be equally outraged by, after so much division, it felt good, very good, to be furious together rather than at each other. Broad includes a hilarious anecdote, corroborated by multiple sources, of a clandestine meeting shortly after the hack between white supremacists and violent anti-fascists. The leaders eagerly anticipated the meeting. From the hack, they'd each obtained dirt on the other side, but didn't know the other side had obtained dirt on them. The supremacists had been sent evidence of Antifa leader Achimo Ibrahim's missed child support payments as well as a photo of him at a Toby Keith concert, and most damningly of all, a social media post from years prior in which he stated he didn't think much of Beyonce. The anti-fascist group received information that Cyrus Scribus, a high-ranking Klan member, once dated an African-American woman, along with images showing him gleefully spooning what appeared to be matzo ball soup into his mouth, which he'd captioned without evident irony, Mazel tov. Each group smugly threatened blackmail effectively canceling each other out. However, many besides those on the extremes profited from American divisiveness, and the road forward wasn't easy. Broad interviews former members of Congress and staff who were in the room for the infamous landsman hearing, five years after the hack, when a fateful miscalculation by Representative Jim Rutherford, Republican Florida, then chairman of the House subcommittee, solidified the sea change in America. On the subcommittee's unusual order, Kevin Lansman was subpoenaed and flown in overnight from prison to testify. Pale and red-eyed, clad in an orange jumpsuit, he was led shackled into the hearing room for what Rutherford planned as a humiliating scolding. But, you've seen the iconic footage, Lansman used the occasion to deliver a powerful reasoned statement for why the Internet monopolies needed to be broken and berated lawmakers for not taking their responsibility to protect people's data seriously. It was Landsman's first and only public appearance after his conviction, and it was an indictment so damning that it turned the views even of many hack victims. Less than a year after the hearing, the Federal Data Protection Authority was established, and Facebook became the subject of an antitrust investigation. Amazon and Google would soon find themselves in the same position. By no means have all the problems of our society been cured in the years since. Crime and poverty, racism, war, All still plague us, but history shows how far we've come by addressing problems together, learning how to disagree, knowing ourselves and putting that knowledge to use, and arguing honestly and with compassion. Broad's book recalls the tumultuous times preceding ours through the voices of the people who lived them and, in many cases, made them. As for the most important missing voice, one thing about Kevin Landsman comes through loud and clear love him or hate him. He recognized a key characteristic of early 21st century America. It was a nation that only rage could unite. Josh Trapani's day jobs have included stints at Washington, D.C. think tanks and associations, at USDA, and as a science fellow for a U.S. senator. He helped start the Washington Independent Review of Books and served as its first managing editor. Trained as a paleontologist, Josh's research applied quantitative methods to understanding morphological evolution, and he performed fieldwork in the U.S., Mexico, and Ethiopia. Josh has published a dozen peer-reviewed papers, as well as essays and opinion pieces in science policy venues and the New York Daily News op-ed page. His fiction and humor have appeared, or will soon appear, in The Big Jewel, The Dell Soul Review, Neutrons Protons, and Issues in Science and Technology. This has been a production of the Brick Moon Fiction Podcast. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on iTunes, as it helps us find a bigger audience. For more information on Brick Moon and special offers, sign up for the Brick Moon Fiction newsletter at brickmoonfiction.com. Thank you for listening.